2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In July, members of the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin purchased 26 acres of land in Nicasio Valley, part of what was once the tribe's territory. The $1.3 million purchase is just the latest successful land campaign in California, a movement among indigenous people to regain control of their ancestral lands. As the ethical case has become more widely known and accepted, the practical considerations of financing and making it actually happen are now taking center stage. We'll spend the morning talking with tribal leaders of successful campaigns about how they've worked and what they've learned. That's all coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. After the water protector protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline of the early Trump years and the racial reckoning of 2020, movements to return land to the indigenous tribes of California picked up a new momentum. In the most recent win for Native groups, the Coast Miwok Tribal Council has secured 26 acres of their ancestral lands. That's a first for the land back movement in Marin. As tribal groups reach these milestones, they encounter the logistical hurdles of merging the indigenous practices they feel called to enact and the bureaucratic mechanisms of real estate and often nonprofit organization. So we start today with that Marin purchase and some history of the land back movement as we get into the details of how this all works. We're first joined by Joe Sanchez, an elder with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin. Welcome,
3: Joe. I I am good. That's Miwok for Are You Good? Are You Doing Good?
2: Oh, thank you, Joe. Appreciate that.
3: Tato-ish. I am good. <laughs> yeah.
2: We're also joined by Caitlin Kelly, who is assistant professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Welcome, Caitlin.
4: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Joe, let's start with you.
2: I mean, talk to me a little bit about this piece of land. Where is it? It's there in the Nicasio Valley. What's it,
3: what's it mean for you? Oh, my goodness. It means the world to us. We are so happy to once again have land in Marin County that is ours. Land that someone, no one can say you have to move from this property, from this place, from this land. It's ours from now on to for eternity, as far as I'm concerned, we're yeah. so happy. Yeah. So it's road 26
2: road. acres, Joe, um, it costs $1.3 million. How did you go about sort of organizing both to kind of create an entity to take this on and also like kind of raise the money?
3: Well, we did do have a 501c3 tax deductible nonprofit, which really, really came in handy for us. Um, we walked with a broker looking at different properties, uh, finally found one that was ideal, that we felt was wonderful for us. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, it's located adjacent to the last Coast Miwok village in Nicasio. So we felt like it was coming home. And, um, yeah, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing to to have happen. We felt that it was like calling us. The land was calling us. And the buyers, or excuse me, the sellers actually felt the same way.
2: Hmm. So the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin, um, what's its relationship to kind of just the the people of the Coast Miwok, right? Because I think it just kind of formally formed in 2020, if I'm correct.
3: Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, the Coast Miwok, we know, are the tenders of the land, and have always had a significant impact on the land itself. And you know, we we're returning to our land and. I'm sorry, I'm not really answering your question. Can you repeat
2: that? Yeah, sure. i was just wondering, you know, how does this sort of tribal council, like, make sure it's kind of representing the Coast Miwok people? Like, what's the relationship between, you know, the council and its, you know, formation and, you know, the the folks in the tribe?
3: Yes, well, it's with us, it's land, language, culture, and tradition. That's what we're all about. And this is part of our heritage uh, passed on through our ancestors, which goes back, you know, thousands of years. So we have a direct connection with the land, with the with the Coast Miwok people of Marin County, who have been here for over 10,000 years. And we have a strong relationship. We're building a strong relationship with community as well. And so we're very happy. We're, we're mm-hmm. overjoyed with this coming together once again. It's a long time coming. That's great. Caitlin
2: uh, Kelly, uh, uh, can you tell us more about the significance of this kind of purchase in the context, kind of the goals of the Land Back movement?
4: Absolutely. Um, This uh, recent purchase is actually one of many throughout California. uh, And it's a really wonderful time where tribes are able to finally get access to their land after hundreds of years. Um, you know, here in California, we had sort of three waves of colonization, first with the Spanish, then with the Mexican government, and then, you know, to the United States, as we know now. And so for many tribes, they have never had legal access or claim to the land that was dispossessed and stolen from them um, over sort of serious, um, you know, series of um, uh, hundreds of years of uh, dispossession. So. Um, This is this is a huge win for um, a lot of tribes, and I think it's starting a wonderful trend throughout the state of California and frankly across the nation um, in returning land back to native peoples that was taken from them um, centuries ago. So what's
2: changed that really got the land back movement, you know, garnering this momentum?
4: I think there's a lot of um different elements because in reality while we're talking about land back right now this is something that tribes have been doing for um you know generations. So this is not necessarily new for native people but at the same time I think you know we have a word that I think your average person can say land back and that's hmm. something that is you know more new and contemporary. Um, I think you spoke to this already, that for a lot of people, um, when Standing Rock happened, you know, the um, the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, for a lot of Americans, that was their first time sort of seeing what the stakes are for Native people and what the stakes are when fighting, you know, against climate change um, and for clean water. So I think this really sort of made us see change for a lot of Americans, Um, And I also look to, you know, um, 2020, when we talk about the violent murder of George Floyd and immediately seeding you know, uh, protests across the United States um, for Black Lives Matter. And also, I think Americans sort of looked in the mirror and thought, well, how have I perhaps played a part in the dispossession of people of color in the United States? And immediately they think, well, what happened here in the United States? What happened here with Native people who are the first to experience this?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it also, I'm curious about the particulars of, I guess what I want to call like kind of the enabling infrastructure kind of technology of this too. It seems like a lot of different tribes have started to employ different strategies that are outside of kind of formal federal tribal recognition, mostly kind of using these land trusts, right? Is it also partially kind of the knowledge, you know, diffusing out that, hey, this is another way of doing this that doesn't require, you know, anything from the federal government?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's huge. Everyone else in this room can also speak to that further than me, um, having actually done that work. But um, in reality, for a long time, you know, here in California and the United States, we have something called federally recognized tribes. And then we have something called um, non-federally recognized tribes. And for the longest time, um, it's been really difficult for non-federally recognized tribes to get resources to be able to do this kind of work. And yet in the past, like, 10, 15, 20 years, we've seen um, um, non-federally recognized tribes do amazing work, as you're saying, through land trusts and 501c3s, et cetera. So um, I think this is a really interesting way to see how tribes have been able to think outside of the box and really um, make significant change and make wonderful leaps and bounds um, through their organizations. Yeah.
2: Joe, um, what are your immediate plans for this land up there in Marin?
3: Um, We wish to bring it back to tending on the best ways possible. What we learned through thousands of years of tending to the land, passing on indigenous ways, um, best ways. We want to bring back native plants to our land. We want to bring back oak trees, redwood trees. Um, We have a lot to do with that. We have also gained tremendous support from others who are willing to help us. The support that we've received it's just phenomenal mm. to come up with $1.3 million in seven weeks out of the blue uh, was truly a, a, a miracle, uh, as a lot of people have said. And we received lots of congratulations on that. Um, but, yes, we worked very hard to get the land so that we can practice our indigenous ways on that mm. property and be an example to others to show them what we knew, what we learned, what we practiced. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to pass that knowledge on.
2: Did you have any mixed feelings about having to buy land back that you know, your ancestors had never ceded?
3: Yes, absolutely. From the very beginning, people had offered us um, cultural easements, things like that. And we said, no, mm-hmm. we don't want anyone to be able to tell us, well, you know, your time is up. You'll have to leave now. We've been through that so many times. It's just incredible that we've survived. But we are still here. We are practicing our ways. We had a wonderful meeting with supporters last Saturday. Uh, was, it was a great meeting. We were able to thank them for the th- for the job that they did, for the helping us and and uh, being there for us in in many different ways. We had a, well over a hundred supporters. Um, we had some that gave as much as two hundred thousand dollars, and others that gave as much as twenty five dollars, <laughs> and it was all very much appreciated. Those smaller donations, which we received quite a few. It helped to show that the community is behind us. The support that we've received is incredible. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank uh, her for mentioning George Floyd because that really opened the door for us to speak to people, to let them know we're still here. you are on unceded Coast Miwok land, all of Marin County's unceded Coast Miwok land. And it's just been a phenomenal roller coaster ride.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> As you know, I understand it too
3: Right up to the very.
2: Yeah. From Vanessa Rancania's story on, on KQD, I also understand this is kind of the fulfillment of a long-term dream, even a promise you made to your grandmother when you were just a little boy.
3: That's right. When I was eight years old, my grandmother took me to a meeting in San Francisco at Civic Auditorium uh, called by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And what that was was basically losing our rights and our sovereignty and for a few hundred dollars. And uh, what happened was everyone who's at that meeting spoke in against accepting that bill, accepting it at all in any way, shape or form. And speaker after speaker spoke. And I remember that very distinctly. Also that um, they handed out little pieces of paper, white paper and pencils to take that vote. And what was amazing was the it was announced that the bill had passed. Uh, and they, I could just feel the air go out of the room. Uh, there was no hooray, wonderful, we win, yeah. we, we we, succeeded. And it was quite the opposite.
2: Uh, we're talking about the land back movement and efforts by indigenous communities in California to reclaim their ancestral lands. We're joined by Joe Sanchez, an elder with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin and Caitlin Kellya, is an assistant professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We want to hear from you. Are you an indigenous person? What's land back mean to you? You can give us an email at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: welcome back to forum i'm alexis madrigal we're talking about the land back movement and efforts by indigenous communities in california to reclaim their ancestral lands we're joined by the coast miwok tribal councils joe sanchez uc santa cruz's caitlin kelly uh, i'm gonna add a couple of voices uh, to the conversation but we also want to hear from you are you an indigenous person what's land back mean to you, you can give us a call the numbers eight six six seven three three 6786 you can always try forum at kqed.org you can find us on twitter instagram and threads or kqed forum or if you're on the discord you can join the conversation there as well i want to add in michelle Vass, who's a tribal administrator with the weot tribe welcome michelle
6: hello
4: Hi. hello
2: <laughs> Great to hear from you. Great to hear from you. We're also joined by Inez Ixquerda, who is a creative director with the Segorate Land Trust here in the East Bay. Welcome. Good morning. So good to hear from you all. Um, Michelle, I wanted to talk to you about your, the ability of your tribe to return to stewarding Tulawat Island. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the deep significance of that place to the tribe?
6: So Tuluwa is an island in the middle of Humboldt Bay. Humboldt Bay is a bay uh, uh, for people that are listening in on the radio. We're in northern, northern California, about six hours north of San Francisco, uh, on the coast. And Humboldt Bay is in the center, or uh, Tuluwa is in the center of Humboldt Bay. And Tuluwa is uh, very religiously, important to weot people it is uh the place of the creation story uh the the weot creation story basically says that the the people come from this place and uh i like to also uh note that the island uh is is um is made of also Weot people. the mm. The two village sites uh, that stay above water all the time are midden which is up mm. above the waterline, and that is as a result of Weot people living there for tens of thousands of years. So um, that you know that symbiotic relationship with the place um, is really important. It also is a ceremonial center. Uh, it's a place for Weot people. Uh, where the World Renewal Ceremony is held each year. Um, and that ceremony is also important to the whole region um, as it connects with ceremonies uh, in other tribes in our region. Um, and it's basically a ceremony that puts the world back into balance mm-hmm. and um, and was interrupted by a massacre in 18. 18- Uh, 60, in February of 1860, in which in the middle of the night, when all the men had left the island in the middle of the ceremony, which is, you know, days long, um, the men had left the island uh, to replenish supplies. um, uh, Settler colonialists from Eureka snuck onto the island in the middle of the night and murdered um, the sleeping uh, Mm. women, elders, and children that were on the island in their you know in their sleep and um it it really stained the city of eureka um it made worldwide news when that happened uh the city of eureka was deemed murderville in the press um and the only reason there was this is actually one incident that happened in a series of incidents that was were going on at the time this is the time of the gold rush and it was people that came to our area were not uh, they were, you know, greedy people looking for riches. And mm-hmm. um, and this one happened to be reported on. It's one of the very few that was reported on because there was a visiting, a reporter from San Francisco who happened to be in the area, woke up the next morning. The bay was filled with blood and he made a report on it. He was promptly run out of town after making the
2: report. Oh, yeah. I mean, Given that history, Michelle, I mean, what does it mean to have this island back in the tribe's sort of stewardship?
6: I, you know, I think that it um, it was a very powerful thing. And, you know, just to give you a little history of how the island uh, was restored to us, uh, because we own most of the island at this point. One of our uh, tribal elders, Albert James, went to the city of Eureka. A large portion of the island had come into the custody of the city of Eureka at some point. Um, And and they owned it for many, many, many years. And in the 70s, one of our elders, Albert James, had went to the city and asked for for the island to be returned. And I like to say in the 70s, the city wasn't ready yet. Um, And... Uh, he actually passed the baton on to his two nieces in the next generation, Charles Seidner and Leona Wilkinson. And they began uh, vigils uh, on a neighboring island called Woodley Island. Um, in February at the time, around the time of the massacre each year, we, there would be a vigil held um, in honor of those who died, but also to return to the island, for we Wiat people to return to the island. And it was through those vigils over time. Uh, and I'm talking like, you know, 14 years over time Mm
4: -hmm.
6: of work, uh, you know, those those vigils turned into a movement locally because it wasn't just we people who were coming. It was other indigenous people who happened to live in the community and just people that live here, you know, uh, people who are third generation Eurekans to a new college student who just moved to the area Um, but they would hear the story and this was a shameful history as part of Eureka it was a stain on the city people didn't really want to talk about it and at the vigil people started to talk about it and it became really a movement for change. Cheryl Seidner um, back in the late 1990s uh, one piece of property was 1.5 acres came up for sale and she um, asked our tribal council if they would uh, allow her to buy it. Now, mind you, we're a non-gaming tribe. We have no economic development. And they, you you know, unanimously said yes. And then, you know, the work began to try to raise the money. And we did that through just grassroots fundraising. Mm -hmm. And I think that the grassroots fundraising was part of the movement as well, because so many people participated in uh, in helping us to purchase back that one point five acres. Uh, that it was really a community effort, and uh, and that helped our community. This this real um, interaction between the tribe and the residents in this area of working together, you know, side by side. I think was. Uh, like a it was a like a healing, uh, which allowed this to happen. Um, and then once we were able to purchase the one point five acres, we started the environmental c- cleanup. This piece of property that we bought was an environmental hazard zone. It was unsafe for human habitation. It had it was nasty, filled with all kinds of toxins. At at the time of purchase, you couldn't even walk on the island without being cut by twisted, sharded uh, shards mm. of metal. There's so many illegal. I mean, things. It, it, this place had been Bad used shape. as a boat. Yeah, it had been used as a dry dock boatyard for many years. Think about the chemicals they might have used in boating a hundred years ago. There was mm-hmm. vats of these things laying around the island. There was a wall of batteries that was shoring up the north end of the island. And so we were doing the work not just on our individual 1.5 acres. You know, we were cleaning up the whole site and doing all the fundraising to do that. And in that process, I think it sort of woke up the people in the area about like you know what we would do Not or me. what we were doing and that that made the movement even bigger and our share, our uh, chairwoman went back to the city of Eureka in 2004 and requested uh, the adjacent property which was 40 acres um, to be returned to that to the tribe and in 2004 the, uh, the city of Eureka voted unanimously to return it to us. And that was the first time a municipal government had ever in the history of the United States or possibly anywhere in the world had returned uh, property to a tribe without being court-ordered to do so. So that was really amazing. So
2: interesting. You know, um, this is a great time to bring in Inez Ixieda, uh who's the creative director for Segorite Land Trust. Um, Inez, you were one of the sort of next um Tribally affiliated entities that was able to get land back from a municipal government in the way that the Wiyot were able to. Do you see like sort of similarities or differences in what's happened, um, you know, here in the East Bay?
7: Um, Hi, thanks so much for that question and um, so much appreciation for everyone on this call. Uh, We remember here at Segurete when we heard about the Wiat land return and and we also celebrated um, down here in the Bay. And I think that that's the thing with each example that it really spreads like the hope for kind of relating to land in a different way. And so I do see different similarities and uh, also differences. Um, For example, the land return here in Oakland with the city of Oakland, Uh, we access that land through a long-term easement, and Mm -hmm. it's a cultural easement that kind of stays with the land now forever that says, you know, the tribe at Sagorte Land Trust will have access to this land in perpetuity, um, but we don't own it with a piece of paper in the same way um, that other land is owned. And so one of the similarities is just willingness of of governments to begin to kind of approach things in a different way with land that they hold. And there's a lot of appreciation for that. So for example, in Oakland, Renimu Pulti Arikne, formerly Sequoia Point, you know, we can go up there and gather, have ceremony, Do prayers, we can um, do harvests of bay nuts and acorns and different plants that are on there. And so much of the relationship with the land is being restored outside of that piece of paper that's a deed.
2: Mm, Yeah. You know, we had a really interesting comment from one of our. Uh, listeners on our on our Discord Red Slider said, you know, I'm somewhat troubled by the buyback aspects of stolen land by conquest, but I'm equally troubled with the idea of distributing cash or land for individual or even tribal ownership for past wrongs and mitigation of outright thievery. Instead, I think in terms of transfers of stewardship of those lands. Stewards don't own anything. They serve as preservers, protectors, and guardians of what they steward. They're obligated to transfer their charge to successive generations of stewards in the same or better condition than they found it. And admittedly, the stewardship model has wrinkles and is debatable, but it's more attractive than other proposals I've heard. I think one of its main strengths is it takes the matter out of concerns and labels about human occupancy and shifts to observances about the land itself. And it also comports well with the view of some indigenous tribes that the earth doesn't belong to anyone and cannot be owned. Um, Inez, like, how did you think about that? I'm sure there was some debate, you know, within uh, the, the group of, you know, well, do we want the piece of paper? Should we own this? Is stewardship enough? Like, is this, you know, what are we signing here? Um, how did you all kind of sort through those issues?
7: Well, you know, we are, um, experiencing land return, land back, and what we call rematriation in many different ways. So that easement is one way. Um, we have also fundraised to to buy back, um, certain pieces of land that were important we also have long term leases with other land trusts in addition to like the cultural easement and then really informal ways of of accessing space. So I don't think it was ever so much a debate of should we or should we not? But how can this tool kind of um, of an easement contribute to our vision of bringing land back into indigenous hands? Mm,
2: mm, makes sense. Let's um, bring in our first call. Let's bring in Evan in Alameda. Welcome. Hey there. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate uh, you guys having this conversation. So I'm not Indigenous, and my, my big question, though, is the, the land acknowledgments
3: that many institutions do, you know, um, we want to acknowledge that this land was originally from whatever tribe and, and all that, if that actually does have a positive impact um, or if it
2: feels more like lip service, because I don't see a lot of movement, positive actual actions from
3: those institutions just the acknowledgments. And, and personally, I, I see that as being a little unfair. So I'd love to hear what
2: you mm-hmm. think. Hey, thank you for that. You know, Caitlin, Kelly, uh, uh, why don't we throw this one to you? I mean, how do you see land acknowledgment kind of within this complex of things that people can do to acknowledge our history and, and take action to, you know, um, repair some wrongs?
4: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I've actually gotten that a lot recently. And I think in general, you um, You know, that's something that comes up a lot, particularly in academic spaces. Um, I think I looked at the work of my colleague, Kutcha Risling Baldy. She's a Hoopa scholar and she really sees uh, land acknowledgements as sort of like a first step and really sort of the least you can do um, and and using that as a catalyst to do other things. So it's one thing to acknowledge that the land had been taken, dispossessed by the native community upon which you are giving this land acknowledgement. But really it's a question of what else can we do past that point so really if you think of land acknowledgements as a form of a call to action um start to think then about what that action could look like could it look like fundraising for land back could it look like um you know ensuring that your institution allows the local tribal community let's say access to whatever your institution might be so i think they're um it could be a first step but it's really uh the least we can do um you know and and i think we sort of what this conversation is really saying is how can we think expansively about how we can um, support local uh, tribal communities
2: yeah let's uh bring in another Carlos. spring uh noah in richmond welcome Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm a ecological restoration coordinator at the San Francisco Presidio Trust. And one of the things that we've been discussing in our conversations around this topic is there's a huge wildfire crisis and a general ecological crisis throughout the the state and certainly the world. And there are large land management agencies that are currently trying uh, and largely failing to really deal with that crisis. Um, My question then is, You know, we can't just turn all national forests and parks over to tribes immediately um, because I don't think they simply have the resources to manage those lands. And so what seems to me to be really important then is how can these agencies bring in indigenous knowledge and collaboratively manage these lands with tribes as kind of a first step towards maybe more extensive land back down yeah, it's an thank interesting you. question. Hey, thank you for that, Noah. Appreciate that um, the the detail on that one too. You know, Michelle, why don't we um, come to you because you all are doing this kind of um, land management and and stewardship. And then Joe, I want to get your thoughts on it too. But Michelle, why don't we start? Why don't we start with you?
6: Well, I think that uh, that tribes actually. I think earlier in the show we were talking about stewardship and the stewardship model mm-hmm. for the WIAT tribe. We don't think uh, about. Uh, our relationship with the land as being stewards, we see it, it more as a rela- relational um, interaction. Like we are part of the land, our ceremonies are part of the land, and it's part. We're all, you know, uh, animals and mm-hmm. bugs and birds and fish and people are all here together in this relationship with the land. And I think that is a different way of approaching uh, the the environmental work than um, than a lot of uh, a lot of agencies and nonprofits think about it. Um, mm. I have gotten into. Um, you know, at, out there in the fundraising world trying to find uh, money for our work. I have had uh, my finger, the you know, some some interesting folks wave their finger at me and tell me that, oh, you have to be careful what land you're getting back. Uh, somebody could be giving you uh, their problems. And like, we don't see it that way. I mean, when we bought the island, we fully knew that it was an environmental hazard site. We also knew it was a sacred site and it needed to be restored. Mm-hmm. We, we have a response. We have a sense of responsibility. We live in this place. This place, like, uh, provides for us, and and we have a duty to clean up messes in our community. As opposed to, I think, um, the way some um, Western ideology wants to buy properties that are in pristine condition and have never been touched. We look at. these places in our community that need help or need to be preserved um, or that are special and you know we do what it takes to return those places to where they should be.
2: Yeah so interesting I we're talking about the land back movement and efforts by indigenous communities in California to reclaim their ancestral lands we're joined by Michelle Vassal, a tribal administrator with the Wiat tribe. Joe Sanchez, an elder with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin. They recently were able to secure 26 acres up in Marin, which is kind of the um, impetus for the show. We're also joined by Inez Izquierda, the creative director for the Segorate Land Trust, and Caitlin Kelly-Yaa, is assistant professor of history At the University of California, Santa Cruz. We're also taking your calls and your comments. We want to hear from you. I mean, have you been involved in landback efforts here in the state or somewhere else? Tell us about it. I mean, what are your questions about how the movement is working? And you know, do you think buying back land is a good solution? for stolen land give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can email forum at kqed.org find us on twitter instagram threads discord or kqed forum i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the land back movement and the successful efforts by some indigenous communities in California to reclaim some of their ancestral lands. Joined by Inez Izquierda, Creative Director with the Segorite Land Trust, Michelle Vassell, Tribal Administrator with the WIAT Tribe, Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Caitlin Keleya'a, and Joe Sanchez, an elder with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin. You know, at the top of the show, Joe, we were talking about your grandmother, and I was just thinking, you know, I think you're about 75, something like that. (laughs) And I was thinking, you know, so born in like 1950, and then I was thinking your grandmother was probably born, you know, in like 1900 or even even before, and her parents, you know, just a couple of hops away to, you know, when the state of California wasn't, the state of California, but was still, um, you know, territory of the Mexican government as part of that wave of colonization. So I wanted to do a little dreaming with you about, you know, what do you hope, you know, in a few generations from now, you know, your grandkids, kids or something, like, what do you hope the land up there in Marin looks like at that point?
3: Well, our purpose is to preserve and teach traditional Miwok culture, to have a space to sing our songs, dance our dances, sit in prayerful ceremony that is easily accessible for our elders, to educate people in indigenous land practices, to help them become better stewards, to give children opportunities to discover and learn the stories of the land. The land itself has to tell them. Our vision is to have a place to come together as we did for thousands of years to help all things, keep all things in balance. Today more than ever, we all need this, all of us. So it's just a matter of continuing that. And you know, we have to think about where we came from. Uh, you know, talking about California become a state, the president or excuse me, the governor, Peter Burnett, had seen things to say about and a couple of those things were he was talking about a war of extermination that will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct. Mm. Well, we cannot anticipate the result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destination of the race is beyond our power or wisdom of man to avert. Mm. You know, California spent over one and a half million dollars on this endeavor, but was reimbursed by the United States government. And Burnett also said, "We have suddenly spread ourselves over the country in every direction and appropriated whatever portion of it we please to ourselves without their consent and without compensation." That's where we're coming from. So when I talk, when you talk about land ownership um, or stewardship, you know, we 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 want to have the land now to own the land. So like I said before, people can't say, "Well, your time is up. You're going to have to move." We want to continue our ways unobstructed. -hmm. And and that this very you know that rests very deep inside of us to have our own place.
2: Yeah, you know, Inez, I know that at Segorte, particularly with uh, the land up in the the hills in Oakland, um, there's been kind of a dream, a vision for kind of what this could really do to that land there. Like what it would mean to have it in native hands, and and you know rebuilding the relationship between the people and the land there. Um, as a creative director, like, have you, how do you sketch that out? Like, how do you, how do you create that vision or think about what you want to do there?
7: Um, Well, with that particular piece of land, one thing that we did is we all just went up there and dreamed aloud together. We sat in a circle up in the hills and and this spot, you can see much of the Bay area. You can see the water and the Bay bridge and San Francisco. And so to look over at that, at that view and, and imagine what do we want to, what could be here? What could it contribute to? What could be here in a hundred years? I think that that dreaming is a huge part of our process here. Yeah,
2: yeah. Do you um, have ways that people can kind of see that dream like outside you know, of, the, of the tribe to kind of see like, oh, this is what doing this might do for, for everyone or for the, for the land?
7: Yeah, we share um, we share out, you know, some of our thoughts and dreams, some of our plans, even some of the visions, such as like, you know, sketches from the architects for a possible cultural gathering place up there in the hills. That's on our website. Um, and we also invite folks to come out to our, our various gardens and land sites and to volunteer and help out and, and tap in and actually be a part of, of working on that land. Yeah.
2: Um you know, Caitlin, I think this one's coming to you. Uh, Mara writes in to say, My name is Mara Malfati rodriguez Panoville-Pomo Nation and Hayward East Bay resident. I'd love to hear from the speakers about how the Land Back movement for Native people aligns with restitution and reparation efforts for African Americans in California. Great job from the speakers for giving visibility for the Land Back movement. All love from us Bay Natives. Caitlin, how do you see that alignment? Obviously, very different, specific histories, but also tied into the the deeper threads of American society.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good question. And um, ultimately, that has been on the forefront, I think, of discussions also related to reparations in California and thinking about like a reparations task force and all of that. I think this is a huge question that basically Black and Native communities need to kind of come together to um, unite and discuss what this future looks like. I mean, I know that, you know, Native futurities are also linked with African-American futurities here, particularly in the United States. um, And that if we are able to work together we can as we've been saying really throughout the entire theme of this show that this is a this is a benefit for everyone so land land back um to indigenous people to native communities um, is actually a benefit for everyone, um, because it's not just um, the benefit of the tribe, but literally when we're talking about that relationship with the land that is returning the land to what it once was even um, after this exploitation. So um, I think we need to come together as communities to really look at what this um, can look like in the future. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear if anybody else has something to offer on that question, um, because I think this is thinking creatively and working in collaboration to together.
2: Yeah. Inez, maybe, have you thought about this?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that we've thought and talked about this a
7: lot. Um, you know, a lot of the wealth in this country is built on the exploitation of Black and Indigenous people, and those aren't separate people. There are Black Indigenous people, and our communities live and work together. And, you know, one of our exciting recent land returns was 43 Acres with Movement Generation. And um, This is an organization that's um, really focused on you know, a just transition from this extractive economy into a regenerative one. And that's a black and indigenous led project. They're kind of create a uh, justice and ecology center that's to uplift and train up and kind of like make a place for black and indigenous visions for the future. Mm So I totally agree with what um, Caitlin is saying about, you know, there's a lot of conversation to be had and working together will no doubt make us a stronger movement.
2: You know, Michelle, I wanted to ask you about a new program that's rolling out. You know, California's uh, Natural Resources Agency says they're going to, you know, make a hundred million dollars available over a couple of years to for financial support for tribes that are working to buy back their land. Um, have you been involved in any of those discussions? Have you thought about it? I know that the application process, I don't think, is fully sorted out. But how are you looking at that um, that program?
6: We're actually, we're actually the. Fr- first tribe to get land back through that process the applications for this year are coming out but we actually received 45 acres uh the last remaining stand of forested land around humboldt bay in 2000 uh, or 2022 Um, and that was through a state grant and we were this the first tribe to receive a state grant uh to purchase land back and uh that land was is really significant in uh, around the bay and then it's the last piece of land that's forested and would likely have been immediately developed the only reason it still stood um as a forest is because it had been owned by one family for generations mm-hmm. and it had been kept intact but if you look around uh, the property is completely surrounded by like suburban um, neighborhoods, and this little strip actually connects back to Headwaters Forest and is a um, is is really like a, a wildlife um, refuge that goes from the bay, you know, gives them access to the bay from the forest, and so it's really important environmentally here in our area, and um, and yeah, it's a it's I. I have a lot of great things to say about the changes going on within our state, uh, about the work that they're doing to to really um, form real relationships with tribes. You know, the state was um, responsible for, you know, taking a lot of our unceded land. Um, And uh, this is a way that we can really work together to both return some land, but also. be able to, um, fulfill some of the, the state's mission, um, and help us all because, you know, th- this, this back movement is really, uh, you know, also related to climate change. If we cut down our, all our forests and build housing and have no forest, we're not going to be able to breathe. You know, forests are responsible for that. Uh, we're not going to have any place for animals to live. We're not going to have any fish. So, um, This is this is mutually beneficial for both the state and for tribes and for all of us as
3: Californians. Yeah.
2: You know, um, we're getting a lot of different kinds of questions around sort of like, well, how can I help with these efforts? And Inez, maybe I'll I'll start with you as our uh, Bay Area representative here in the the East Bay. What would you recommend for non-Native people who are wanting to support uh, land back efforts?
7: I love this question, and there's so many ways for folks to to connect with these efforts. Um, you know, just looking at your own family history, that actual land that you live on, what is that land's history? Where are its ancestral care- caretakers? How did your family get there? What's, you know, what's your connection to these lineages of harm? And then, you know, if you have disproportionate resources, if you have more than you need, redistribute some of those to Indigenous people. And if you don't, you're likely connected to an organization, a business, an institution that does hold resources that they can redistribute to Indigenous people or that they can shift to kind of uplift Indigenous-led work. So that could be like a business, a church, a synagogue. Um, You can pay Shumi land tax here in the Bay Area, which is a voluntary way to kind of recognize, you know, there was a financial benefit to stolen land and everyone that lives in this territory receives it. Um, And you can, when there's a call out for support, whether it's an environmental issue or a social justice issue, show up, show up for indigenous people. Uh, So those are a couple of quick ways. And um, there's, I'm sure, lots of others. Yeah.
2: You know, another uh, listener writes in, uh, Joe, this one's for you. Can you tell us about the 501C3 so that people can contribute to the Coastal Miwok people?
3: You there, Joe? Sorry, I have to unmute. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no problem. Go ahead. Um, yeah, the 501c3 is a, a vehicle for for people who wish to support. And it's obviously come in handy for us with the purchase of the land. And, and it gives us a way of moving forward with that, those things that we wish to do. We, we, we want to go back to our cultural and traditional ways and building a roundhouse, having a, a uh, steam room a uh an arbor for dancing and those sorts of things but also reach out to the community we want to work with the community build a strong positive community relationship mm-hmm. um, and we hope to do that in many different ways we actually do practice um controlled burning
2: mm-hmm.
3: and those sorts of things programs with cal fire with pg e with different groups we have a preservation officer who um, who leads that for us. And uh, we're, we want to become very involved with, with, with the community. That's super important to us, building a strong relationship. But, yeah. you know, there are so many things that can be done. We have uh, people who have called us and told us, you know, we have 400 madrone trees ready for transplanting. Would you like mm-hmm. them? Yes. Um, we get all kinds of offers like that, which is wonderful. Because we plan on using those those madrone trees and oak trees and redwoods and plants and bushes and you know all kinds sure. of growth. That's one of our first things to concentrate on now that we have the land back.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, Inez, bounce back to you. I mean, has there been a real process of kind of capacity building? You know, as the as the movement's visibility has grown, how do you make sure you have, you know, the people uh, in house who can, you know, answer the call about the Madrone trees, you know, and, and, or any of the other, you know, native plants that might be around and say like, yes, we know what to do with this. We know where to put them. I mean, is that knowledge already there? Are those skills and capacities already there? Or have you kind of had to go out to the community and and, and build that?
7: Uh, That's an interesting question. I would think both. I mean, I think there's a lot of knowledge in our extended communities, but also some things we don't know. And a lot of, you know, young people, young Indigenous people we work with have never had access to land or growing anything. And so part of our commitment to making sure Indigenous people have access to land is knowing that we're going to have to grow some of those, some of that knowledge and um, kind of investing in a deeper way. And then extended, of course, you know, connected to different um, folks at universities and different institutions that are um, wonderful at sharing knowledge and collaborating with us in deep ways to kind of bring in some of those Mm
2: -hmm. skills
7: and information.
2: Um, Caitlin, got an interesting one for you um, Robert writes in to say, I work at a land-grant university. Can any of the guests explain how land-grant universities benefit directly from land seeds from Native people? Also, who can help the land-grant university I work for to explore how to rematriate land?
4: That's a really wonderful question. Um, there actually was an entire uh, research project around this through the UCs, um, many of which are land-grant you know, institutions. And essentially, when you have a land-grant institution, it quite literally meant... That that university was given access to that land and the, and the rights thereof and the deed, et cetera, um, and and it was just taken from Native people. I mean, we can look at Stanford University, for instance. Um, And I would look to the resources of that particular study um, that really looked at the ways that universities can sort of right the wrongs, um, because many people don't know that their institution might be a land-grant institution. They don't know that that meant literal dispossession and displacement of Indigenous people um, and actually, uh, you know, the violent takeover of that land. Um, so I would look into that study um, that was done throughout the UC system. Um, and, and also, this is just kind of goes for every institution that, you know, somebody that might be listening in. Um, think about the ways that you might be able to contribute to the sort of whether it's repossession of land, but also resources um, for Native people uh, moving forward. Yeah.
2: You know, Michelle, um, we've gotten a couple of questions about casinos, and I know you said it earlier. You know we're a non-gaming tribe, and I guess my question for you is: You know, this is your land. Couldn't you do anything with it? And and I felt like you there's a there's a sense that somehow that would be a bad thing to do with it. Do you think that's true?
6: Well, I think that uh, people don't understand why why tribes have casinos. We don't have one, <laughs> uh, but the reason why tribes have casinos is because we have to do all the things that a government does uh like you know as a travel administrator i have roads that i need to create i need roads that i need to keep up i have sidewalks i have street lights i have uh mm-hmm. you know all the things public water system i have a wastewater system i have all the things that a that a you know a normal government has to manage only the difference is i do not have tax dollars to manage those things it, your local municipal and state governments all even the federal government tax everybody they tax our uh, our wages they tax our land they tax our um our sales anything we buy gets right. taxed uh and they also provide all these fees for you know if mm-hmm. we put cars on the road or whatever as a as a tribal government i can't do that uh, to our people because they're already being taxed by everybody else and because our land is held in trust, and that means that you know it's in this uh, weird uh, yeah. nonprofit state with the federal government. So tribes have uh, have created uh, casinos in a way to
2: it's kind uh, of a anyway. replacement municipal revenue, right? Yeah,
6: exactly. So yeah. it's not like every other business. It yeah. is it is different.
2: Thank and, you. Some, uh, yeah. Well, we got to wrap it up. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry. Thank you for that, though. We've been talking about the land back movement and efforts by Indigenous communities to reclaim ancestral lands. We've been talking with Michelle Vassal, tribal administrator of the Wiat Tribe; Joe Sanchez, an elder with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council; of Marin, Caitlin Kelly, assistant professor of history at UC Santa Cruz, and Inez Xtiarda. Creative Director with the Segorite Land Trust in the East Bay. Thank you so much to all of you for your sharing your wisdom with us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Nina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.